When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 25 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, all about that kid from Freehold, Bruce Springsteen. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And this is a production of Dark Doc Media, but we have some news, Marcus. Tell the folks what's going on with the Imbalanced History. We are now a member of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network. Sweet! I'm stoked. And we thank you all for listening, and you've been the basis of this whole thing, so we're excited. And uh, we'll tell you more about that as we go through the weeks, but they're a cool rock and roll podcast company that we're proud to be a part of. It is an honor to be a part of their team with some of the other music-oriented podcasts that they have. We are thrilled. But I just want folks to know that nothing's going to change about our little imbalance history approach to rock and roll here uh, on the uh, podcast. Things will be the same. I'm glad that they'll be the same too. And that's one of the reasons why we were so interested in working with these cats is because they respect our creative freedom. And they understand that we're presented to you each and every episode by the good folks at Crooked Eye Brewing, pouring the cure for what ails you in the heart of Hapro since 2014. And we go forward with our episode here uh, before we get started, a lot of folks uh, have been checking in with us and uh, giving us really great feedback on the podcast. And we got to thank Paul the Rooster. Uh, he's been listening, a Philly guy who moved back to Ireland. And now, because of his word of mouth, we're number 34 on the podcast list in Ireland. Can you believe that shit? I know. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Way to go, Rooster. Thank you, Ireland. And please send us emails or hit us on Facebook or Twitter and let us know you're there. Also, thanks to my buddy Mike Bacon right here in Philly. Scott Poirier, who's a big supporter of the podcast. Vinny the Crumb, Metal Mike, uh, Jeff Moran from the Crooked Eye Band, and all those guys, of course. And Belinda and Jason Daub from Browns Mills, New Jersey. Also, we got to send a thanks out to Michelle from Vancouver, British Columbia, who is spreading the word on the rest, West yeah. Coast. She sent a note to me on WMMR's text line to say thank you. The podcast listens in Canada are up, eh? Yes, they are. And they I think they when it's cold, they wear toques and listen to their uh, podcast. I know a lot of people have been checking in from areas other than where we're from, the Philadelphia area. We have Bill Campbell from Buffalo who appreciates the music knowledge, but... He doesn't, doesn't want to hear all the Philly talk, but I, all I'm going to say is that in this episode, Bill... <laughs> 
Philly is part of the history, so there's going to be Philly talk and Jersey talk too. You know. And Paul Schlim from Maryland. I think he's from Maryland as yeah, well. Yeah, cool. So we're getting to hear from you guys on our Facebook, uh, and you can also hit us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. So, Bruce Springsteen, huh? I know. Episode 25, and we're talking about The Boss. You know I love it. The research for this episode has made me like The Boss even more than before because I only knew a little bit about his personal life, but playing his music in rock and roll radio for a long time, especially since being here at WMMR, where I've played him more than I've played him anywhere else. It's been a thrill. His, his music fits in. It is so American. It is so patriotic. It is so passionate. It is so soulful. It has been a blast reading and learning more about who he is. He is the kid from Freehold, and that's where life started for Bruce Springsteen with his family on Randolph Street. Um, in, in, I know you've spent time with his book, Born to Run, and in the early parts of the book, he really does a great job of describing the neighborhood, the, the family uh, Catholic Church, uh, St. Rose, which plays into the story later, uh, is right there on the corner. Uh, he talks about the tribes, uh, the Springsteens, and uh, the Ziarellis, I think. Ziarellis, yes. And there's his mom's one on side. One, corner of the one, L, at, one on the other corner of the L, and they're separated by the Catholic Church. That's hilarious. And he paints the picture of the neighborhood he grew up in, which is, if you think about the timing, is like 19, late 50s into the mm. 60s before the troubles come to our hometown. And uh, it was just uh, one of those things where he was a kid just loving life and uh, playing with his army men in the roots of the giant tree. He says it's the biggest tree in Freehold at the time. Uh, And they used to play all in the tree. He was the first kid in the neighborhood ever to have the balls to climb all the way up into the upper branches of that tree. Really? And that's the kind of atmosphere that you would think comes from the the early 60s, you know, that that kind of a that kind of an adventurous attitude for life, you know? Yeah. He uh, lived life really, you know, passionately, which a lot of passion in that house. And he but it was different, like. His dad was a very Irish manly man. Yes. And it, he got he he seemed to have gotten his passion from his mother and the Italian side of his family. A little bit of balance of both as most of us are, right? Uh one of the things that's true about Doug Springsteen was that he suffered from depression and it wasn't as much talked about in those days as we talk about now. So Bruce just knew that this is the way that dad is and uh, at some point, and I'm not 100% sure, I'd have to go back and reread the book, but I know in the book he talks about that transition from that carefree kid to he worried about dad or dad becoming an issue in the house. And uh, just real quick to talk about it, he talked about later in life when his father moved to California how he loved to see that his dad had found his happy place. It took him a long time. And one of the things that's clear about the book And I just love that Bruce wrote it because it's going to help so many people who struggle with depression, just like Bruce Springsteen has in his life. Seems hard to believe, but it's true. And they say it's hereditary. And, you know, talking about his father and the relationship that they had, one of the things that I found very interesting and in the book Born to Run, Bruce wrote it himself. He is a beautiful writer. Like Not only does he write beautiful songs, but he tells his story so beautifully. Poetically. 
and poetically that yeah. it's I mean, it is. He is a fantastic writer and he talked about his relationship with his father. He was a lot like his father, but his father yeah. until later wouldn't admit it and maybe never at all admitted that he and Bruce were very alike. Bruce Bruce's father, Doug, was a mama's boy, just like him, even though he uh-huh. would never admit it. He was empathetic. He was emotional and sensitive. And that pissed his father off because he was the only boy and he was just like his dad. And he wanted that tough Irish bread, you know, skull knocking Irish kid to work I the factories. You. And most people, and that includes, I'd say, um, a lot of the Generation One, Generation Two Springsteen fans. Doug Springsteen comes onto our radar as a character in Bruce's songs. When he was playing early and he's doing songs about growing up, he starts telling the stories about coming home late at night and coming through the back screen door and it's dark in the kitchen and all he can see is this glowing ember of his dad's cigarette. And and conflict would come because dad was struggling. Bruce didn't understand that. He was just a kid with long hair and a guitar or his dad used to call it that goddamn guitar. Yeah, He heard that a million times and it was a part of his songs. That was part of him exercising all that, I think, in those, especially in those early days. But he found other ways musically and in life uh, to get past it. And he had great support along the way, both uh, from his mom and from his family and his wife and his kids. So, yeah. But we're not going to get too deep into that because that is just one part of the equation. So that's how we got to know his dad. Yeah. And it wouldn't be until years later that he really spent more time talking about his mom uh, she'd become a regular attendee at his concerts. Uh, he even got her up dancing on stage at the Spectrum before they tore that place down. And the Spectrum, by the way, will come in to play again. America's show place here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Episode 25, all about Springsteen. That boy from Freehold. At some point, we all go through rebellion in our teenage years. And in Bruce's case, music was part of his escape and it was part of his his path. He played guitar. He loved to play guitar. Probably drove people crazy with it, right? Just like so many that we know about. And along the way, and we're going to trace the path in just a little bit, um, live music and live performance has always been a big part. Uh, Bruce started playing uh, in a bands that mattered while he was still in his teens. By the time he was 21, he already had almost a whole decade of experience playing live and playing in bars, even you know before he was twenty-one. So we want to go through that because that's a big part of the story. One of the other things that I found interesting reading the book was that after making enough money to buy his first guitar, doing odd jobs, that was, those were that was the only non-music jobs he ever held in his entire life. As soon as he got the money for the guitar, he stopped working the job. Like, this is the only job I'm ever going to have for the rest of my life. Yeah. He wasn't kidding. And he made the commitment from those early days through his early bands. He made the commitment right up to the moment that he broke out on Born to Run, which is where we're going to cover up to on this episode, by the way. We're not going to try to do the whole story. We'd be here all day just doing one episode. <laughs> so, But he, he made that commitment in his head, and then he looked for like-minded individuals who had talent and fit the the in with the gang that he would develop as he developed his bands and and all the different permutations of what would become the Bruce Springsteen band. Yeah. He couldn't read music. He learned by both sound and reading chords. And so to play that way was a little bit of a challenge. I also think the fact that he came from such a poor upbringing, 
that was another wall that he had to climb over because he was oh, poor. Yeah. And I don't know if people realize when you're that poor how much harder success is for you. And if you read his book, you see and you feel his struggles all the way through. It's because you don't have any built-in advantages, any built-in edges. You have to create it all. And he is a guy who did all that on his own terms for the most part with very little that you would call compromise or adherence to norms. He just did it his way. And uh, that goddamn guitar got him pretty far, I think you'd say. It also got him kicked out of his first band because <laughs> it well, was a crappy guitar. <laughs> we're coming up on some really good stuff right there. I want to start almost at the end of this episode by talking about Mike Appel because it really this, his place in the story comes in along the way. But Mike engineered and produced uh, the early records, the first couple records. Uh, he was involved in the emergence of the anthem, Born to Run. They were in the studio working on the beginnings of what would become the Born to Run album. Now, around November 3rd, 1974, Mike was good at stirring stuff up. Let's just say that, okay? Yeah. Now, almost six months before the single Born to Run was released, he managed to get some solid mixes that weren't the final mix that's on the album into the hands. Um, the number that I heard was about a dozen uh, radio station programmers. Of course, by then... Bruce had already become friends with Ed Shockey, who worked uh, afternoons at WMMR at that time. So I'm Ed Shockey. Have a good evening. We'll see you tomorrow at 3, and stay tuned for Luke O'Reilly. And if you're out there in Buffalo or anywhere else and you're Googling it, Shockey is spelled S-C-I-A-K-Y. So you'll find it that way, S-C-I-A-K-Y. A legend in Philadelphia radio. So, of course, as soon as Ed got it, he played it. So did DJs in New York at WNEW and WMMS in Cleveland, WBCN in Boston, which had been a big town for Bruce all along. And one of the other ones was WVBR in Ithaca. And I bet there's a story behind why that small town programmer decided he was going to be early on this Bruce Springsteen kid. But that's what Mike Capel did uh, in the middle of the, the heat of Breaking Born to Run. So they did what was essentially leaking the single and his idea was to create demand for Born to Run, not having any idea how hot this single was going to be for a man who was already called the boss. Even the AM stations were playing it in key cities as the buzz spread because it was that hot. I remember hearing it in the early days, and I remember the impact it had on me. I was never a huge Bruce person, but I remember hearing it on rock radio in its early days. I can't remember the exact time, but had a big impact and it changed rock and roll well i mentioned ed shockey and we'll have more on ed later as we continue with episode 25 of the imbalanced history of rock and roll about that kid from freehold bruce springsteen well marcus we can't do this podcast without the help of our good friends at crooked eye brewing located at 13 east montgomery avenue in hapro pennsylvania yes they've got the stuff man i'm telling you that the board has been full and it's really good stuff a lot of new things and all your favorites right there at crooked eye meet paul and paul the brothers-in-law who started crooked eye by brewing at home you get to meet the crooked eye crew yeah and they make it fun every night i really like the staff there and while you're there you're going to meet new people which means you're going to make new friends that's right 
Now, last week I went with two friends of mine who are home brewers, and they met Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin, who's all excited about what he's been doing to fill the board there at Crooked Eye, always full lately. And he's got a home brewers club that I didn't even know about that meets regularly. So find out about that and all the fun activities at Crooked Eye by going to crookedeyebrewery.com, and uh, you'll see Jeff when you stop by. Great brews, great people, and fun times guaranteed. Next time you want a True Craft Brewery experience, Stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. Serving nightly in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast. Let's dive into what we call becoming Asbury. I think it's clear what we mean, but really what we want to talk about is the live playing that Bruce did in his early days and kind of take you through uh, the early days and tours as we led up to what we talked about, the lawsuit with Mike Capel, which will put the brakes on Bruce and the E Street Band for a little while, but they couldn't be stopped. No, they couldn't. They were a force to be reckoned with, and Bruce knew it. He All right. knew it. The first recorded gigs for Bruce are in 1965, okay, yeah. with a band called The Rogues. Yeah. And I don't know much about them because they didn't get much play in as far as the PR world. But his first real band, the Castiles, started playing out in August of 65, including two gigs at that St. Rose of Lima school, which is just across the field from where the Springsteen household was. Pretty cool, huh? Yep. And there was an older couple named Tex and Marion who were hosting the Castiles at their apartment, letting them practice there. They were one of yes. those unsung families or parents that were major impact or players in allowing these boys to develop their sound. And one of the things that I found interesting, one of the many things I found interesting in Born to Run was that the Stones were the blueprint for cool. They, to the white boys of Freehold, were the holy grail of rock and roll at that time period. And they had no idea. So 1965, and a young Bruce Springsteen plays his first gig in Asbury Park. Uh, on July 25th and 26th, they play at the town's rock and roll band contest held right downtown. And that's the first spark of those two people. Asbury Park, I think of him as a person, but Asbury and Bruce being bonded. Oh, totally. Coming up soon after that, their first gig in New York City at... Cafe Wah. What? Oh, yeah. Jimmy wasn't the only one who got his start there. In fact, if you do the math, I think Bruce was there maybe a little, just around the same time as Jimmy. I don't know much. we got to dig into that. Yeah, we have to see if they ever played on the same nights as their bands together. In November, they played there. Uh, then they played twice in December. And in January uh, in, of 67, they played like a residency almost, a total of 24 shows at Cafe Wah with the Castiles. They fold into Earth, and no more gigs at Cafe Wah. I guess they like having the Castiles, right? Uh, they play places like the Hullabaloo in Freehold, uh, Off-Broad Coffee House in Red Bank. They play a lot of places in Long Branch. Um, so Earth keeps going forward, but like I said, no gigs in New York City. The band morphs into Child, a band called Child, uh, and again, they're back at the Hullabaloo. They start playing at the Upstage in Asbury, uh, the Pandemonium in Wanamasa. And their first foray to the South Jersey Shore, June 7th, 1969, they played in Margate. 
Wow. That's just crazy. Right around that time, they get their first gigs at the legendary Student Prince in Asbury Park, and they take their first trip to Virginia in September of 69 uh, and then go back for another visit just a couple months later in November. Their first little tour. Was yeah. Like, that's pretty sweet. Well, you think about it, Why would? and I know there's a reason, yeah. and maybe we should dig into that for the future, but... Yeah. Um, they had a reason to go to Richmond, and they played a gig there, and then went well. So they brought them back, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was a long ride. I know. And you know, to get <laughs> there, um, they played a lot of like gigs for like the greasers, as he talks about in his books, and the rah-rahs, which were the jocks and the cheerleaders, and a lot of the uh, rich kid gigs after a lot of they earned their gigs. stripes. Yeah, a lot of school gigs. But like they played some like beach gigs. For the rich kids at some of the beaches, and the parents would be on the side getting hammered on martinis. Look, and you're the kids doing would what tr- you need to do. The rich do. kids would try to start fights with them because they looked like a bunch of band guys, and they were very rock and roll. Big and obviously, mistake. those dudes were so afraid of them stealing their ladies that they were threatened by that. <laughs> well, the momentum builds off of all of that. In November 69... They formed Steel Mill. Now, this is a band that people point to all the time, but I've listened to some of their stuff that I've been able to find some videos online and some stuff online, and uh, it's just not a fully formed thing, but the guitar player sounded pretty good. So they start out, and they head back to Richmond. They do New Year's Eve in Richmond, so they're doing pretty good. They really are. And then they really expand the turf. They head west. Big Sur in California, they play at the Assailant Institute. They go to San Francisco. They play The Matrix in the Fillmore. They play gigs up in Marin. And then back to Virginia. Holy cow, it was like they really were on tour. And by summer of 70, they are back at the Jersey Shore. But they spent most of January at the Upstage in Asbury, which was becoming a regular haunt for them. They become, you love this, the Sundance Blues Band. That didn't last long. And then they became Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. But in July of 1971, it had to happen, folks. They start calling it the Bruce Springsteen Band with lots of Asbury gigs at the Student Prince and the Upstage. In 72... Uh, they started covering the same ground with an occasional New York gig. You know, they're doing the, the Virginia and the Jersey Shore. But in 1972, May 2nd, all the touring they've been doing, all the stuff they've been doing, earns them an audition at CBS Records with the great John Hammond. Bruce Springsteen, Columbia Pop Audition, job number 79682. Mary, Queen of Arkansas, take one. The next day, May 3rd, 1972, my 14th birthday, Bruce records those legendary demos at CBS Studios and is signed shortly thereafter by Clive Davis and John Hammond to Columbia Records, where he's been all through his entire career. Mary Queen of Arkansas, it's not too early. While working on uh, the Greetings Band, played two shows a day at Max's Kansas City in New York City, trying to hone their chops there. And, you know, look at the band he had, man. Talk about David Sanchez on keyboards, Vinny the Mad Dog. And then the core of the band that would remain with him, Gary W. Talon on the bass, Danny Federici on the uh, organ, and, of course, the big man, Clarence Clemens. And they just honed the shit out of their shit at those residencies that they started doing. They got their first gig September 4th at the Bitter End, a, a legendary club uh, down near the Bowery uh, where they made a lot of noise. There's a couple bootlegs out of some of those Bitter End shows that are unbelievable. Well, in October, 
It's officially the start of the Greetings from Asbury Park tour. Uh, they have their first gigs in Pennsylvania. Yay! Westchester. Sorry, Bill. They play at York College, and they also play um, on the same day uh, at the 615 Club out there. 1973 rolls along, and there it is. After all that he'd been doing, Bruce's first album is released on January 5th, and it kind of played to the hype that he was the young Bob Dylan. If you think of some of the wordsmithing that he did, uh, the way he worked words together, the way he did rhythm and couplets and phrasing, really there was a similar feel to it. But there were other songs, Spirit in the Night, Blinded by the Light, For You, Growing Up, that showed more of a unique artist than just the young Bob Dylan. He had the long songs. He had the short songs like Spirit in the Night. He was a poet. Yeah. He really wrote beautiful stories. He told beautiful stories in his songs, and that's really hard to do. And Hard to Be a Saint in the City got Bowie's attention, and that's going to come up in a little bit, uh, where the two intersect with Bowie uh, starting to admire this new kid, Bruce Springsteen. So here we go. On the road. It's the first stand of eight shows at the main point in Bryn Mawr. Legendary. Then... A similar residency, a stand at Paul's Mall in Boston. That's where some great bootlegs were uh, recorded. 14 shows. They play at Villanova University on January 16, 1973. Villanova. Then they take a road trip to Chicago. Then it's back to Max's Kansas City in New York. Then it's back to California, including the L.A. debut at the Troubadour. Oh, my goodness. First gigs at Berkeley, San Jose, Seattle, Vancouver, and Phoenix. You see it's starting to happen, and the gigs improve. College dates on the East Coast. This is all in 73. Four more shows at the main point. Finally, he stops driving by D.C. and does a show there. June 6, 1973, Bruce Springsteen is on stage at the Philadelphia Air Conditioned Spectrum Opening for Chicago. Now, it's not uncommon for a young band on a label to get put on tour with a big band on the label. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But do you know what happened at this show? I At the Spectrum show? Yeah. I have no idea. He Philadelphia fell in love with him and immediately worshipped him. And he was better than Chicago that night. Impatient for the arrival of their favorite band, Chicago, fans began to boo. What? And uh, there's one report that Bruce flipped the bird to the crowd while he continued to soldier on through and uh, make it his way through a set. And I'm sure uh, it's kind of funny to him at this point as uh, as he celebrates his 70th birthday. By the way, <laughs> we're releasing this on Bruce's 70th birthday. Happy birthday, boss. Happy birthday, boss. Is it my birthday? Well, let me hear my birthday song. But that tour with Chicago also leads to his first gigs at Boston and Madison Square Gardens. Two nights at Madison Square Garden for a kid from Jersey. Shit, man. Are you kidding? His whole family was there. It was quite a year, and the gigs got better. November 11th, 
1973, he releases The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Sweet Jesus in the Morning. It is just one of the greatest albums ever. And I was listening to it just before we you got here to do the uh, podcast here at our northern studios. <laughs> our northern Philly studios. <laughs> and um, in the last notes of New York City's serenade faded, and I turned off the iPod. When you think of Bruce and uh, music for down the shore, you think of Sandy. When you want to party, you think of the, uh, the E Street Shuffle. Uh, there's thoughtful insights about the urban landscape, which he would continue to explore on songs like Incident and Rosalita and New York City Serenade. I also noticed on that second album, the songs are a lot longer. Like, he wrote a few songs that were more radio-friendly, I guess you would call them at that time. They were more pop-friendly, like Spirit in the Night, which was a shorter one. Blinded by the Light, which was a little shorter. They were in the three, three-and-a-half-minute vein. And then you look at this second album, and you've got five, seven, nine-minute songs. songs yeah. And they're beautiful. Yeah. And they're perfect. And they're the way an album should be recorded. And it forced his real diehard radio fans to re-examine what they were doing um, and so many of them would never play Rosalita unless they played Incident first um, they were playing uh, Kitty's Back even though it was seven plus mm-hmm. right so people would finding their way and of course every 4th of July you break out the one about Sandy yep. <laughs> now through that period right after release he was uh, kind of rotating between the main point Oliver's in Boston Max's Kansas City in New York and my father's place on Long Island so he'd do a stand shut it down move over I guess it started to be better to do that and the gigs improved you're listening to the imbalanced history of rock and roll with me Ray Coob and my partner in crime Marcus in the darkest And here is the turning point in our story, buddy. January 8th, 1974, they head into the studio. Bruce is going to record two songs. This new thing he wrote called Jungle Land and what he thinks may be one of his best songs yet in Born to Run. He spent a lot of time working on Born to Run, like six months alone on that song. They say that that album and uh, that song became the bellwether for his perfectionist tendencies, and it did. It took a while, and I guess that's why Mike Appel couldn't wait, and ultimately he leaked the single early, and uh, he wasn't wrong, right? He was very right. Jungle Land takes a lot. Think about it. It's going to take a while because you've got all these different parts. You've got orchestration, and it's all got to work just right. So that's going to take a little while, and that forces them to focus on Born to Run. In March... They hit the road. They take their first trip ever to Texas, playing Houston and Austin and Dallas. Back to their home base, they're doing local gigs at colleges all over the place. But in the Philly area, they played Ursinus, Swarthmore, and Bucks County Community College. Wow. Where he played with Chick Corea. And are you ready for a big what? They also played a show at Archbishop Carroll High School. It's a Catholic high school here in Philly. What? All I got to say is the class of 74, Carol, must have been pretty cool. Apparently. (laughs) Oh, wow. Summertime, and it's back to the beach. They head down to LBI, that's Long Beach Island, for the Philly area Jersey Shore goers, and they play at Spray Beach, which is a beach I go to every summer. So Bruce was playing like right in the hood there uh, in Beach Haven area. He did an incredible job building up a fan base in this area, by doing those small gigs like sure. a brilliant job yeah it really built it uh, brick by brick then they take their first trip to memphis because you know elvis 
and they get their first gig at the bottom line. Talk about a place where they would uh, get a lot of work and also create legendary uh, bootleg shows there at the bottom line. September 8th, 1974. Write it down, Marcus, my dear friend. That is the first time that Bruce Springsteen appears at this new club in town called the Stone Pony. What? <laughs> All we want to know yeah. is what are you people doing in my town? And now, let us have a warm, warm, I make that hot, hot welcome. Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. That was a new club then? Yeah, it was. It only been open a couple months. And Southside Johnny's band, which was before the Asbury Jukes, was playing. So he went in to play with his buddy. You know, he was already becoming a star in Asbury. And that created the uh, the bond with the Stone Pony that still lasts till, through to today. He had one sequence. And I'm going to tell you about this. And it's, think about it. He had one night at the Main Point in Bryn Mawr, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And the next night, he played at the Tower Theater, which, if you don't know, Philadelphia holds about 2,500, 3,000 people. From the club to the theater in one night. The gigs were getting better. That's a big jump. Also in the mix along the line is February 5th, 1975, a legendary live broadcast on 93.3 WMMR. At the main point, hosted by Ed Shockey. And it became um, one of those things, having a copy of that. If you had recorded it that night or you had friends, people were copying and swapping that tape for years. And it's it's legendary night. You sweated the place up, man. But the gigs improved. Avery Fisher Hall in New York, the Capitol Theater in Passaic, two more shows at the Tower. Oh, yeah, another couple college shows in Philly. Camden County College, Westchester, and a series of events that are part of Philly Springsteen lore. And this is part of why we have to talk about Philadelphia. Bill up there in Buffalo, this is why, because it's part of the history. (laughs) True story involving Ed Shockey, Philly rock radio legend. And uh, it all happened around uh, November 25th. 1974. So after all that last sequence, Ed invites Bruce to stay at his place uh, here for a few days. By the way, that couch where Bruce slept is still out there somewhere. Somebody owns that yes, couch? Yes, they do. I, I know. And she's going to put her hand up. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know who still has it or who had it last. So, uh, But it's still out there. Send us a picture of that couch. It was kind of like, hey, Bruce, come on down, stay and hang for a couple days. Judy and um, Ed were joined at their hip their whole life and they were a great pair of hosts. So they would be making their way around town. So, hey, Bruce, just come. We're going to go do this stuff. Oh, hey, you want to go meet David Bowie? Because he had just been working on Hard to Be a Saint in the City. He's working over at Sigma Sound at 12th and Arch, the legendary studio, which is no longer in business. But he was working on Young Americans there. So they go down to see Bowie at Sigma. Can you imagine the atmosphere in the room? There are pictures. Yeah, Ed Bowie and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. There has to be audio on the of them three on the radio or something. There has to be. There's not on the radio, but if there's any audio, it's from tapes out of those sessions in yeah. the booth. But uh, Bowie had been working on Hard to Be a Saint in the City, but hadn't yet finished it, so he didn't want to play it for Bruce. Bruce was cool with that. He was just hanging out and meeting David Bowie. So that night, later on, Ed and Bruce head down to South Philly to the Philadelphia Air Conditioned Spectrum to see David Bowie perform live. That's just crazy. But wait, Marcus, there's more. After the show, there's a late show at the Academy of Music. Ed takes Bruce up Broad Street to go see the late show with Janice Ian and Billy Joel. What? 
wasn't a late show in Philly when it started like at midnight? No, I think it was earlier than that. But still, they get there in time. They see Bowie. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was 11, 30, 12 o'clock. But they got to see mm-hmm. Bowie and then they go uptown and they see Janice and Billy and they all meet backstage. And yes, there are pictures oh of them all goodness. backstage on that night. Ed was pretty good about getting pictures of these things when they were happening. He knew what he knew what the scene was and he knew what, that people would want to see it. So you figure that's the story, right? <laughs> no, no, there's more. After that, Bruce and Ed are hungry. So they hit a local diner uh, with Billy, who decided he was coming with him. He's going to join them. And they walk in, and Ed, Ed is friends with a guy that's huger than huge, kind of epitomizes AC radio. Jingle writer. That's right. It was a great jingle writer, too. Barry Manilow is at the diner that they go to. So they all have a late supper together. Now, just picture that. Ed, in his glory, because his pal Barry Manilow and his new pal Billy Joel just met Bruce Springsteen, his buddy who he's joined at the hip with. Can you imagine being at the diner and going, is that Barry Manilow with Ed Chalky? Oh, yeah. Who are those other guys? Who are those other guys? Well, at that point, I don't think uh, I think Bruce was starting to get more well known, and Billy was just before he had had broken out. Yeah. So they're That's all hanging surreal. around. It's crazy. That is now so the next surreal. day, the next day, since Bruce is visiting Ed, yeah. they slide by Rittenhouse Square and they go to visit ninety three three WMMR, and uh, Bruce cuts a Christmas greeting. We still play it every once in a while around Christmas. True story. Ed Shockey, a Philly legend who helped a ton of rock stars become rock stars. And this is a true story from uh, uh, many sources over the years, including Ed himself. So, But we're not done yet. <laughs> Bruce closes out 74 and starts 75 at the Stone Pony and closes out the Wild and the Innocent Tour March 9th, 1975 in D.C. And the gigs got better. You're enjoying this, aren't I'm you? I'm totally enjoying this. This is amazing. Because you really feel his slow, steady, hardworking climb. You feel it. Well, they started to get some options, and their turf expanded with trips to New Orleans and a stand at the Roxy in L.A. again that becomes recorded and becomes a bootleg. Lot old Bruce bootleg. Are you ready for the first trip abroad? Because Bruce and his band certainly are. They go to London and play the Hammersmith Odeon, over to Stockholm and Amsterdam, oh yeah. yeah, and then back to London before returning home to wrap the year with four shows at the Tower Theater, including an afternoon takeover at 93.3 WMMR. Holy cow. That's how they said it back then. <laughs> yep. Philadelphia. And the gigs improved and spread to pretty much everywhere after that. It's incredible how he grew and how they really, really paid their dues. They I mean, did. I don't, I, I, I don't know what to say. because There was a bootleg that was called Paid the Cost to Be the Boss. And he definitely did. They did. And and they Dude. did. It wasn't always pretty. It wasn't always. I mean, they'd be the first ones to tell you. There were a lot of times when they were, you know, basically slumming it to get to the next gig, barely having what they needed to keep it going. And they just kept going and going and going. There was no other option for Bruce. This is what he was going to do it no matter what cost. Like Michael Monroe, dead jail or rock and roll. Yep. Exactly. And that's exactly how Bruce was. But it's, you know, the dedication and the fact that they made their knuckles bleed the way they did makes it even more impressive and more American in so many ways. So that summer, that single uh, Born to Run is out there burning up the airwaves. I remember driving to pick up my girlfriend in my mom's 69 Ford station wagon only had an AM radio. 
And famous 56 WFIL pops on. Barn run. It's Bruce Springsteen. I almost shit myself. I almost broke the speaker of the car, too, because Bruce was finally on the straight radio stations. It was so cool. Because I remember hearing Born to Run first, and that was on the FM rock station in Denver, Colorado at that time. Excitement builds through the summer. The official single release happens, and in August 25th, 1975, the Born to Run album, that masterpiece, is released. It wouldn't take long before the buzz would really go to a whole new level. Weeks later, he appeared on the covers of Time and Newsweek at the same time. That's just crazy for a young artist like that. For any artist. It really was unprecedented. I don't know what to say at that point. I mean, I'm learning so much about Bruce and just his rise and, and the fact that he had such an impact the way he did. But he was also a crossover artist, not only rock and roll. People in pop liked him. Yeah. The soul, the R&B. I mean, he grew up playing a lot of doo-wop and soul and a lot of instrumental surf music as well. So he kind of had that huge background and all kinds of music influenced him. Absolutely. And that's what came out, especially on those first two records. But now he was becoming the man he was supposed to be in terms of rock and roll. Uh, But at the same time, trouble was brewing with his manager and his friend, Mike Appel. They had a pretty good relationship. And as success began, Bruce didn't quite, it didn't quite compute why his bank account wasn't growing. And he knew that Mike's was, and it created tensions and it created problems. And they went out on what the band termed the Chicken Scratch Tour. And the, the nickname, which bands sometimes will nickname their tours afterwards, right? Or during. And so I think the name belied the tensions between Bruce and Mike. And they did some uh, summer regional home shows, you know, around the area. And then what they called the Lawsuit Tour, which went into 1977. And, and while there was a gap between Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, the records, the band kept earning and playing as much as they could during the lawsuit, which would sever his ties with Mike Appel. Yeah, that was pretty messy reading about that. Just Well, you got to look back to see how it came to be. Back in 71, he'd been working with, you talked about him having the, the rehearsals at the grandparents' house yes. and places opening up, people open up their place to him. Uh, he had that kind of working relationship with Carl Tinker West. He was the manager of some of the early bands, Child and Steel Mill and the Bruce Springsteen Band. He referred Bruce to Appel, and he auditioned for him. He told him to come back when he had written more songs, and when he came back in 72, he heard the songs that he liked. It was the beginning of what would become Greetings, signed Springsteen to a production contract, and got Springsteen the audition with John Hammond, which led to him meeting Clive and signing with Columbia. He produced the first two albums and had production credits on uh, Born to Run as well, especially in regards to the single. But when you see that you're selling records... When you see, and he didn't see it at first because the first two records didn't really sell that many copies outside of the New York and Philadelphia areas. It began to change in the pockets where he became popular, and then with Born to Run, it was really, really clear. So that led to this sue me, sue you, fuck you, fuck everybody kind of a a thing, and these guys had been friends. And uh, along the way, he met a guy named John Landau. John's the guy who coined the phrase, I have seen the future of rock and roll, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Now, that'll get you bonded to a writer real quick. Oh, yeah. And by then, he was really becoming his advisor, and Bruce wanted him as manager. So basically, part of the legal wrangling was Appel 
filing an injunction to keep them from recording records until the suit was settled because he wanted his piece of the pie. And Bruce would tell you, Mike did a lot for him, and I think they still sat down at the end to sign the deal that settled the lawsuit. What what occurred kind of is explanatory about the relationship they had, because they were hanging out a couple buddies, and they started drinking, and, and Bruce talks about reaching for the pen to sign when they were all drunk, I guess. Yeah. And Mike actually stops him. He goes, I want it but not like this. Look, when you know you're making money and you only see one-tenth of it in your bank account, you got to go where you got to go and do what you got to do to get your life back, to get your songs back, to get your music back, to get your money that you've already earned. So sue me, sue you, sue everybody, and they finally settle it, and that allowed Bruce to move forward and start thinking about how he was going to use the 80-plus songs that he had written while he was sitting around unable to record and those songs and the characters in them would spill out over the next few albums darkness on the edge of town and the river most prominently but also later on because bruce was out there experiencing america he was still touring band was still going you know they made the change uh around uh, born to run that included uh david sanchez leaving the band so they found roy bitten which was extremely lucky uh, they also um, got Max Weinberg in the band because Ernest Boom Carter is actually the drummer on the album and the version that was released early to radio of Born to Run. That's Ernest Boom Carter. And I don't know what the reasons were, but I guess based on the way he plays, that as soon as Bruce heard Max Weinberg, that was it. Yeah. He was in and he's he's in for life. Yep. It's, you know, it, the, the evolution of how the band became what we know them as is pretty fascinating. I don't know why Vinnie Mad Dog Sanchez was... Uh, removed from the band. The, there were many the stories. Rig, was it rigors of the life on the road? Because sometimes... That, in the early... They didn't call him the Mad Dog for nothing. Okay? Uh, so I think that's part <laughs> of it. And uh, But yeah, life burn, on the road burns you out. And if you're not getting there, especially, it felt like they weren't getting there. And he and may it, have had a family. And who knew? And, and who knew that, that Max Weinberg was sitting somewhere in the wings that you didn't know about until you started looking for him? Okay. And that's the E Street band that's uh, that we know and love, except... Of course, you know, along the way, there's been additions and we lost Danny and we lost the big man, but it still rolls on. But it all started with a little 10-year-old kid from Freehold, New Jersey, having an idea that it might be fun, that rock and roll might be a life. And deciding that's what he wanted to do his entire life. It is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, episode number 25. And uh, I got to tell you, man, it's just sometimes the way things work out with us in this podcast that we could release it on Bruce's 70th birthday is just uh, rock and roll kismet, synchronicity, whatever you want to call it, man. No kidding. That's total rock and roll juju at its finest. And it's been fun learning about Bruce Springsteen, and I can't wait to dig in deeper to who he is, who he was, and really find out more detail about what shaped the sound that we get. And he still consistently puts out great music, great albums. Look, we're running longer than we like to and normally do, but we're going to let it play because the first chapter, this is just the first part of what is uh, probably a four or five part podcast. Easily. So we'll tighten it up. Do the tighten up. Tighten it up. Tighten that up. And which Bruce really loved. Um, we're going to talk about his live shows. We're going to talk about the different phases of his career. And all I can tell you is for this kid growing up in the Philadelphia area, uh, the love for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band is unequaled. There are so many bands I love dearly, dearly. But these guys, they're from here. Yeah. We help make them guys. They're heroes to this area. 
They are heroes. And the guy who stirs the drink, holds it all together, and makes it all happen, Bruce Springsteen. Happy 70th birthday from the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 